Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Ooh, who's ready to talk about the radical potential of keeping a personal journal? Uh, I think, like, mindfulness is super important. <laughs> we're gonna ha- I think we're going to have a surprising amount of fun today uh, talking talking about uh, First Reformed. Uh, let's, let's, le- reform or revolution, as, as the good Leninists taught Zing. us. Zing? Zing? <laughs> Uh yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have a good time talking about a about a super depressing movie. Um we are mixing things up oh. a little bit. Oh, we're already off to an interesting start. I thought this movie was super upbeat. I thought this was a really positive movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's it's, it's your, already starting. <laughs> it's your horror vanguard for the week. I am John, joined oh. as always. By my good friend and co-ghost of the show, Ash. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. I just, I just thought of like some, some, listeners. One of you, surely, just based on numbers, must be a comedian. Uh, and I just thought of like a really good joke based on what John just said. And that's like, like a man walks, a man walks into a Leninist bar, and he's like, "I'm a Reformationist," but it's like, which kind? Someone workshop that into something much funnier than yeah, what I've got going uh, on here. Uh, some, we can't do all the work for you. There's a bit in there somewhere. You guys can figure it out. <laughs> and that's like that's part of our show too. You know, that's part of the kind of like baked in public intellectualism. You know, like dialectic thinking. You know, we're put we're planting seeds of thoughts. And you have to do some harvesting at home as a, as an active listener of our program. This isn't this isn't a passive film review show. Sometimes you have to finish our bits for us. <laughs> <laughs> we we are, we're extremely glad that you've all decided to listen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we are, as Ash mentioned, we are talking about 2017's first reformed, um, and we. Uh, it's it's going to be an interesting conversation, I feel. But for people who maybe have not seen First Reformed, uh, I I am I am excited. I'm excited to find out what this film is about, and I'm hoping Ash <laughs> that you'll be able to tell me. Journal entry: fifteenth April, twenty twenty three. I'm actually feeling rested today as I write this. A welcome turn of events given my inconsistent sleep this past week. Spending hours wandering a local woodland did wonders for my well-being. The grackles just in from their migration, the gnome, the swamp, the minor cryptid sighting, all a constellation forming a sign of rejuvenation. Photography from today was well received by those whose opinions matter most. A local photographer even slid into my DMs to meet up for a collab. Hard to take fault with the events of this day as they've unfolded. I'm always feeling at my easiest when writing and becoming photographic. It's like walking, honest on an ontological level. I still can't quite translate my experience through these emanations, but each effort refines the process, one day. This journal entry is a bit metatextually haunted. I see you, hear you, future Ash, reading this on Horror Vanguard. Go figure there would be a movie that was so focused on journaling as to draw our temporally divided attentions in that direction. More lines I wish I could erase, but as the preacher man in today's, tomorrow's film said, no erasing. 
each of these words exists now, and I need that I need to at least have responsibility for that. Still, it makes this day's entry a bit unnatural. This journal has hitherto been a decidedly unproductive space. It exists to gather my thoughts, chart courses, and allow myself to communicate directly to myself through time, not to be converted to something for external use. Then again, maybe it's just a literalization of a process that typically extrapolates through a few intermediary steps. Do you journal? Listener of the future? Why not? Everything else is a retelling of your story on the terms of the other. Those terms are still felt here, but here you can perform your history on your terms for yourself. No productivity, agential, directed. Performativity, a limitless cartography. So much of our history burns away. When Twitter finally closes its tenure as the social industry site of the day, so too will all of the effort that we have put towards making that site interesting, usable. Every joke, every embarrassing moment, successes and failures, all ontologically unplugged. Without history, without memory, we are nothing. Just a bunch of aesthetics that can be reassembled and repurposed without our consent or even our knowledge. Building up a history, a memory of the self, start journaling. This history feels like such a great strength. You can so very nearly feel the earth shake as you walk. Even when I'm moving slowly, it's like a looming wave with all of the pages cresting and crashing before the shore. Each such wave is forgotten alone, but a coming collection of personal proletarian histories can erode mountains. Start journaling. I am unaccustomed to introducing episodes on the pages of my journal. Those are reserved for hundreds of HV notes docs. But here, for the first time, join us as we discuss First Reformed. Ooh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, it's now my favorite movie about jur- about the importance of journaling. <laughs> <laughs> it really, when you get down to it, this is basically a film about really good stationery. You know, honestly, honestly, th- th- you had great penmanship, good journaling practice. Don't erase. Keep writing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and and again, the the journal is a non productive space, right? Like giving himself the freedom to destroy entirely the body of work rather than succumbing to the temptation to, I don't know, turn it into a blog or publish it or read it as the introduction for your film criticism podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, listeners, listeners who have listened to the show for a while, um, will will know that. Um, we have a kind of loose Venn diagram, uh, a, a vibes-based taxonomy of cinema, uh, that, where where every film kind of maps somewhere somewhere between the two of us. Uh, there 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 is Ash cinema and there is there is John cinema, and, and we are we are this is the raw, uncut, super concentrated John cinema. I ha- I have to be honest. We should start there. Um, where would you like to begin, Ash? So I think I think that this is a really interesting like this isn't in our notes, but I think that this is kind of like a fun a fun place to to begin our formalism zone effect effect effect. The formalism zone is to kind of like. Because this is this is like like when I was watching it, I was like, this is the most John movie. This was like this was literally like if someone 
hired a team of experts to genetically engineer cinema specifically for you, they would have made First Reformed. <laughs> like this is this is extreme John Cinema, but like I I loved this movie. This movie is is fantastic. Like I don't know, like this one this one usually usually when like one of us picks a movie that's 100% a John or Ash film, the other is like, there's a lot of enjoyable stuff in here, but okay, we're in for like a goofy ride. But no, this one, this one, just a flawless banger of a film. Uh, well, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I, I have to admit, I, I did think that you were maybe not gonna like this. Uh, and I've got to be honest, a big part of this is because it's an A24 film, uh, and I, I know, I know, without, without kind of like prejudicing the audience i know that an a24 release is maybe not super high on your personal list of priorities of movies that you've got to see um and i i don't know i guess i guess maybe we can maybe we can kind of talk about that what is, what is it in practical terms what what has like a24 come to represent as a kind of brand so I think that this is really interesting, right? Because A24 releases a lot of horror movies or movies that are, like First Reformed, somewhat very horrific in, in their content, right? Um, a, a lot of grim movies, a lot of very dark movies. And for me, A24 has become like this kind of Schrodinger's film, right? Like it, it is it is simultaneously unwatchably bad or one of the best movies I've seen gets distributed on A24. And it, and it, only in the watching is it revealed to be one or the other. And, it, and there's like no mid movies released by A24 for me. They're either like, you either get you either get The Green Room, which is just like, God, what an incredibly powerful movie. Or you get Tusk, where I watch that and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like next, you know, like. You do, you do realize that that means we kind of have to do an episode on Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> oh no yeah okay fine let's do an episode on tusk why not we're running out of horror movies at this point anyway so <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll do tusk when we finished every 70s giallo movie how about that how, how does that sound <laughs> but this I, is kind I, of like oh go on go on i just go gonna on. say i kind of get what you mean that like a24 of course is is just a distribution production company distribution i think uh in almost entirely right um that they, they everyone goes oh it's an A24 film as if that means that there's going to be something that in it's something internal to the films which unify them right but really A24 is has become this kind of brand a sort of like shorthand for a particular kind of marketing demographic um mm -hmm. and I totally get why people kind of roll their eyes a bit when people get excited about like the next a24 movie because internally so many of those films don't really have a great deal in common with each other oh absolutely and like i mean like i love the black coat's daughter i love lighthouse obviously i love lighthouse it goes without saying our midsummer episode is a testimony to how we felt about that film <laughs> But I think I think this does kind of like speak to a broader problem where like uh, people think that A24 is people talk about A24 in the way you would talk about, I, I don't know, a, a director with a really potent style, right? Like 
Wes Anderson, David Lynch, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, but um, like, you know, like people ascribe A24 this weird agency, but what A24 has is an amazing marketing department and a lot of business savvy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think that's the kind of problem with them. Um, so, so has this, has, was this a kind of pleasant surprise? Uh, cause I, I know you hadn't seen it before this, before doing this episode. So I'm kind of curious to know what your, what your first impressions were. I, I loved this movie. I was so pleasantly surprised by, by first reform. Cause when you look at the trailer, so I, I watched the trailer before I watched this movie, because when you first suggested that we do this movie, I was like, oh, what's that? Is it from like the 70s? <laughs> you know, and I, was, and I was like, oh, this sounds exciting. Um, but like, I was expecting this to be like, because, okay, like, like, here's an amazing 70s German horror movie. Oh, speaking of that's, dear listener, can you hear that bell ringing? That's the 70s German horror movie bell. <laughs> Welcome to the new segment on our show where I have to go get a package that just arrived. Be right back. <laughs> <laughs> I hope oh, you I hope you leave this in. I hope you leave this in. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to this in. Maybe not this part where I'm actually walking through. <laughs> I'm gonna open this live on show. Just gotta get back at the mic. Alright, everyone. Uh well that was that was our uh 70s German horror movie alarm. And now, live on air for the first time ever, I'm going to open a package I just got. Let's see what we got here. I'm on edge. All of the listeners are on edge. Oh, everyone, everyone is the hype. I can hear it. I can feel it. Let's see. Got to remove some of this tape to get the delicious meats inside of the package. <laughs> you know what? I got to say, uh, so uh, welcome to the first Horror Vanguard unboxing. We've got really strong packaging today on today's package. They put in a lot of effort to make sure I couldn't open this <laughs> smoothly. Oh, there we go. Yes. One final seal must be broken. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I am now the proud owner of about 40 micro cassette tapes recorded by a tour guide in the 80s or early 90s. Uh, each, of these, <laughs> each of these micro cassette tapes has exciting labels. What is this one? London. The first one I pulled out. How appropriate, John. London. I don't know what's on London, Yellowstone, Vermont. Another Vermont. A third Vermont. We got a lot of Vermont. I cannot wait to listen to these. I I feel like this is how you stumble across some like cursed uh, knowledge that's just going to slowly worm its way into your consciousness. Oh, so like like okay, and like like listeners, you'll appreciate this too. Like you know how in every like horror movie, especially in Evil Dead, there's like a, an old school reel to reel recorder. And then, like, a cursed book and a big sign that says, please don't read, they're full of demons. <laughs> and then someone with an academic background is like, you know what, play the tape. I'm going to read the book for a bit. Yeah, roll it. And roll it. Roll it. What's the worst that can happen? And then, listeners, in the audience, aren't we all like, don't fucking do it. Why would you ever do that? Just don't. Just say no. 
Like I am, I am the living proof for why and how the Evil Dead situation happens because I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna play that tape. I'm gonna read that book. What's the worst that could happen? Best, best guy. I'm mean, sure I'm diving in. Let's see, let's see what's in this thing. Hit it. What could possibly? Well, well uh, if this is the last horror vanguard, uh, I look forward to uh, find getting a tape in the mail, mail in I don't know four to six weeks. <laughs> that's just you kind of whispering about something. So it's 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 like oh my god this is this is the beginning of our spin-off po- podcast where where you keep receiving mysterious tapes in the mail from me and they lead you on an increasingly bizarre occultic adventure as you attempt to unravel what happening what happened during the disappearance of Ashley Darrow <laughs> coming I, this fall I sense I sense a brand new HV spin-off show <laughs> Oh there we go there we go we have the Maybe the disappearance. A podcaster vanishes. We'll workshop the title. <laughs> but the nuts and bolts are there. Anyway, anyway. Uh, speaking speaking of uh, recording some kind of auto-ethnographic uh, data to help you better understand the context of the life you live in, uh, uh, let's talk about First Reform some more. <laughs> yeah, let's... Uh, that, honestly, a seamless segue. A seamless segue. Back, back on track. Back on track. Uh, it's it's a Paul Schrader movie. It's a it's it's a movie movie by one of the one of the very few directors uh, and writers that gives me some gives some credence to auteur theory. Uh, in my opinion, um, it's very heavily influenced by uh Schrader's book that he wrote when he was in his twenties, uh, called Transcendental Style in Cinema. Uh. Mm-hmm. It's it's great. It's it's slow. It's very deliberate. Um, the opening sequence where you see the reveal, or like it's it's one of these films which just has so many kind of moments which have stuck in my head ever since I first saw it. Like uh, the 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 kind of initial reveal of the church itself, which I think is just mm-hmm. a gloriously composed shot. Oh, beautiful! Just yep. gorgeous. Um, it has. Uh, maybe one of the sort of saddest and strangest funerals you've ever seen on on mm-hmm. on, on, a, on a film screen. It has th- the floating scene, which we will get back to. <laughs> oh, we will. Um, so uh, here's 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 my question for you. So, like, Schrader has written about film a lot and has spoken about this film a, a lot. And I guess the question is, to what extent do you think? as critics, as people who are engaging with cinema, to what extent do you think we should pay attention to what people tell you their film is about? So I think that this is a really interesting avenue to explore, right? Because there's always the question of the the author of a text and and how much do they know about their own art and, and how they can understand their own art. Because for every... Uh, for for every artist who has a a deeply well thought out exploration of their text, you get another individual who's like, "Oh, that's not political. No, 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 no. It's just I just made a movie for funds. It's just for giggles. Don't think about it." And I think I think like you have to walk this fine line of like, so there's the there's the text of the film, right? There there's what you watch in the like, what, how long is this film? Like a hundred and something minutes, like. There's what you watch from the first reel to the last. And then there's all the metatextual stuff that you can absorb 
right? There's the there's the context of this movie coming out. There's the context of it, it coming out. I think a little what was this like a year or two before Andreas Mom's book. Um, but now, yeah. like, we're reviewing this in a world where Andreas Mom's book now has a movie, which is like that didn't didn't see that coming. <laughs> but like you know like those are metatextual items right that we can add into the discourse of the film they're not strictly necessary but they can be useful and interesting and that's kind of how i approach how authors talk about their movies um authors wow uh, how directors and actors and filmmakers talk about what they wanted to do and how they approach their text you know because it becomes like if an author says that their goal was to create something with a really conservative value system and they fail that's interesting you know, like like those are those are interesting avenues of discussion, but it, in and of itself doesn't dictate the flow of the discussion of a piece of art. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think meaning there, like any 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 work of art has a sort of surplus of meaning, which is is mediated through the director's own self-understanding of artistic process, but is always in some ways kind of excessive to that. Um, mm -hmm. There's always a kind of like overspill of meaning, especially with, with, especially with something like this, I think mostly because it aims at, it's very deliberate in what it's talking about. It's very yes. deliberate. It's very measured. It is uh, deliberately aiming at themes and ideas, which are, uh, non-material and therefore are necessarily subject to a kind of hermeneutics um, especially because Schrader's much more interested in form than content in this film um, and it's form by which the meaning of the film is communicated and that's true of any mm -hmm. that's true of any cinema right uh, it's it's not really necessarily about what's happening in the frame it's about how the frame is communicating action to you as a viewer and so like there's always a degree to which me, I, basically i guess i'm saying like meaning is slippery and yes. and all the all that you get left with in like any director who tells you exactly what their film is about has just given you another text that has to be interpreted, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is why I really appreciate David Lynch's approach to this. When people ask him what his movies are about, he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that. That's great. That, that, that's so much more fun. Like just on, just on a basic level, that's just so much more interesting and fun and exciting for me as a critic of these films to not have to then juggle the baggage of of some artist trying to tell you what their creation is about but i think one of the things that it would be fun to talk about is whether or not this film is realistic well uh, is this, yeah this is, is this a realism this is this is something you you sort of said in a sort of i think a throwaway remark when we were just talking before we started recording that it was like a aside from a few moments is a very realistic movie and i'm like that's an interesting question um yeah what what do we mean by a, a realistic film so this this i think is an interesting question right because i made that throwaway comment in the context of so we get we, we get a scene and i think it's in the third act of this movie the end of the second or beginning of the third about there where uh our our preacher man has like a pseudo tantric meditative sex scene with with the widow he's been counseling and uh, you get this like 
fantastic moment where they just start floating and then the room dissolves away and they're like floating through the cosmos. It's very, it's very decidedly surreal. And for me, that recasts the light of the rest of the film. That kind of changes the text of the rest of the film a little bit. It makes the rest of the film much more realist in its grounding. Even though what we're doing here isn't strict realism, what we're doing here is very much more vibes-based, which we'll also get into. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is uh, the idea of, like, again, transcendental style, right? The whole point is... Uh, as he puts it in his book, seeking to maximize the mystery of existence. Right? So mm-hmm. I I think there's a distinction here that we can draw between... And th- this is what... Genuinely, this is one of the reasons that I love horror movies, which is like, we, there is a presentation or understanding of the world which presents it as just a kind of series of flat phenomenological objects. Like Zizek has this uh, famous analogy of like, the world is like, um, a half-finished level in a video game. You know, yeah. if if you turn around quickly enough, like the textures wouldn't pop in, right? <laughs> you know, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just like it's just like stuff. But the 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 kind of great thing about the great thing about cinema is is a kind of extraordinarily powerful capacity to render existence as being almost essentially mysterious. Like beneath the surface, like you peel off the skin of reality and there is like behind that flat phenomenological appearance of things, there is so much more kind of weirdness and depth and beauty and tragedy and uh, emotional catharsis than, than you might think just from appearance. Oh, absolutely. And I think that this is really what this film is getting at. It is 100% in very intentionally playing with that space. Yeah, it, and, and, it's about... The, oh, go on, go on. the reason I would say that it's not... It's not r- r- realistic, but it is sort of realist, is because realism is, in a sense, about the stylization of reality. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't get unmediated access to existence. You get, like, this kind of formally this is this is a stylized presentation of real familiar things that by that formal stylization estranges you as a viewer from the very surface of the things that you're so familiar with Ooh, i'm so here for this i'm so here for this i I think that's great and i think that really works in context with the floating sequence yeah oh a hundred percent yeah a hundred percent like so much, so much of this film is kind of like I felt I felt that this movie was very jarring, you know, like like so much of what we see in this movie is really just meant to kind of like you, there, there's never a point at in, in the watching of this movie that I kind of felt comfortable with it. That I was like, oh, OK, here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Now we're at, we're now we've settled in for the ride. You know, like there's always like the sequence with the children where he's explaining the the Underground Railroad and the church's kind of connection to that. <clears throat> I I loved that sequence and I loved exactly it happens at exactly the right moment in the movie. And it kind of adds to that building tension. And it is really that Zizek comment of like you're, you're kind of seeing the seams in the real when you're watching this one. So if you if you've never read it um transcendental style in cinema has this great chapter on Robert Bresson 
uh Brisson is like the big influence on this film in in fact like he he basically uh just sort of steals st- steals huge amounts from <laughs> Bresson but he, there's a great chapter on Bresson and he talks about this idea of disparity he has these three way this kind of tripartite structure you have disparity decisive action and then stasis and he talks about this notion of disparity as being something which kind of injects this where's the quote i've got the book in front of me it says it injects a human density into the unfeeling everyday an unnatural density which grows and grows until at the moment of decisive action it reveals itself to be a spiritual density right because there you're right there's this kind of like slow uncomfortable kind of ratcheting up of the pressure right the pressure that uh ernst toller is under and t- until you get to this moment of like, well, I I honestly think some people find that scene kind of slightly silly, and I get why, but it, it's like it is the film is deliberately kind of pushing you back to try and make you engage with it on a sort of deeper way. I think. Oh, absolutely, absolutely! Like, like that 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 scene is I I think so. Without that scene, I think the the, the kind of quality of this movie goes down pretty significantly for me. Like that that having having that just a brief unexplained unexplained moment in this movie that almost nothing engages with, where things just fall apart, and and kind of like the conceptual frameworks of reality just sluice away. And it's and especially because what they're doing is just so damn weird to begin with. <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing this kind of like meditative, spiritual, sexually adjacent practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it, it it works so much better than if they would have just had really good sex and then that kind of solidified a bond between them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, there's there's this there's this quote. Uh, uh, from the film, which I really, which I really love, and I think about all the time, which is a line that Tola uh, says to himself, uh, where he says, "How often we ask for genuine experience when all we really want is emotion." And I'm like, if that is not a, like a mm-hmm. damning indictment of 95 percent of mainstream cinema, I don't, I don't know what is. This idea mm-hmm. that like actually there there is there's a lot of emotional complexity to this film but it is not like a straightforward kind of you don't come out of it with a with a straightforward and easily transparent emotional state um you know i i i i I, you come out of it going you've experienced something and it, it it has tried to change you as a as a subject on, on so many levels, the, the, this film does not leave you the same as when you watched it. Like it's it's honestly up there with like threads in a lot of these other movies that we've talked about. Where like by the end of watching the movie, like something should have changed inside of you. What do you think about uh, what they call Academy Ratio one thirty seven one? I mean, because like in a way, in a way, this is like this is the original aspect ratio of the talkie. Right, because of oh, the yeah, yeah, because yeah, of the introduction yeah, yeah. of the of the 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 sound strip, um, so it, it feels deliberately old fashioned, um, you know, especially when like sixteen nine or four three is so much more common. Um, yes, but yeah, yeah, what do you what do you think about this? What do you think about this kind of like very deliberate choice? 
Well, I think the choice of aspect ratio should always, I think, be an active participant in our discussion of a film, both formally and textually. And like, I mean, because obviously we can think of silly examples like the blood waters of Dr. Z. Yeah. Right. The movie where a man turns into some kind of Frankenfish. Uh, it's it's originally meant to be shown in, I think, like four by three. It's matted. The, the original, like the as intended version is matted. Right. So it has an aspect ratio um, that, that you can see with the bars on the top and the bottom. Um, but there was like there was like, I think, a 2K interpositive re-release that took out the mat, right? So you can now, oh, you can see the whole film. It's not matted anymore. But now, now, uh, Doctor Z, the horrible fish monster, is wearing like Nike sneakers for the whole movie <laughs> because those got matted out. Because when they're shooting it, they're like, yeah, we're gonna mat this thing. It doesn't matter if his feet are this, uh, like, as long as they're this close to the bottom of the screen, they're getting matted out. It's fine. It's a non-issue. But now he's just got some fresh kicks that he's in the whole movie, and that kind of ch- and that that obviously textually changes how we approach it. It goes from being like, it becomes that much goofier. And by making this movie by by like harkening back to an older aspect ratio, or at least an aspect ratio that has a bit more history behind it, I think like like a lot of this movie, like this movie is, I, I think it has an older feel. The church that we're in is very old. Like, like the, all of our characters, their attire doesn't feel particularly contemporary. A lot of what's happening in this movie feels a bit timeless. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a quote. So like, uh, there's, I was thinking quite a lot about Ida, uh, Paul, uh, Pavel, Pawlikowski's film from 2013. And, uh, mm-hmm. Pawlikowski said, I was really bored with cinema and its trick and its tricks. Close up, handheld mu- music that underli- uh, underlines stuff it doesn't work on me anymore. So I thought, okay, let's try and make a film that's a bit more photographic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- when I when I saw that, I was like, Haha, we have to talk to Ash about photography because <laughs> like that's what cinema is, right? Cinema is a kind of photography. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I as the literally resident, just a bunch of still photographs. Yeah. As the resident HV photography guy, like, what do you, what do you think about that aspect ratio for like the composition of photography? The composition of every fucking frame in this movie is brilliant. Like, like this is <laughs> this is like the thing that made this movie work for me. There's the the one the one scene the the, the, the establishing shot of his church I, I thought was great. Like that was a fantastic shot. But like that was it was kind of just a fantastic shot, you know, and it's like it's almost easy to be formalistically brilliant in a way, but it's so much harder to kind of like it's like Dragon Ball Z, right? Like everyone's gone Super Saiyan and it's just so much harder to push to that next level. But there's there's a shot in this movie and this is the shot in the movie where I like the, like this changed the film for me. This is, this is what made the movie like so fucking good. And it wasn't just the floating scene. <laughs> um, but there's a shot where Toller is journaling. And and the camera, it, we, we, we see the shot of him where it's the hallway leading up to his room and is the doorway and it's very dark inside the bedroom and the only thing that's really lit in there is him at his desk journaling. Mm-hmm. And so he's on like the far right third of the screen and he's writing away and it's like, it's so distant, it's so isolating, but it, at the same time it has this warmth and proximity because like the level the camera is at would be at about the level of a child walking into like their parents' home office or something. Yeah. So like he's, 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 he's distant yet oddly imposing. And it's like, that is a phenomenally framed shot. 
Like there's something that's so photographic about it. And like, oh, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And so, so much of this movie is about like, it's trying to engage with like the trace of history in a way. Right. Like not, not, not really like the kind of sign as a thing in and of itself. Right. This movie isn't like we, we, we get all these like, like echoes of historical moments. We hear about the deaths of, of like a, a Brazilian environmental activist. You hear about the history of, of the underground railroad, right. And, and slavery through the civil rights movement in America. You get like these, these kind of like contemporary historical issues, right? Politicians doing shady things for environmental, for companies that are destroying the environment. But like by, by not kind of making itself too contemporary, by, by, or by, by falsely imprisoning itself in any vision of the past, it like becomes that much more alive. Um, I think that's, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And it's one of the things that, connects this film to uh the exorcists franchise Ooh, okay yeah let's go <laughs> uh so we should we should probably talk about we should probably talk about uh paul schrader's exorcist movie um which is so, Domi- okay. dominion <laughs> What are you, what are your thoughts on Dominion as the as the resident both exorcist and Paul Schrader guy? <laughs> uh, I, I, it's it's a very odd film. It's a it's it's really <laughs> unsurprisingly it's very much a Paul Schrader movie. Uh, Angelo Badlamenti, the composer of Twin Peaks, was yeah. supposed to be the mm-hmm. was supposed to be the composer for this. Um, uh, I think no, was Badlamenti? I think Badlamenti was the composer on Dominion. Um, it's it's very strange, and it the original so Schrader was originally hired. Uh, the studio didn't like his cut. They recut it and released it, and it bombed. And then they gave him like thirty thousand dollars to try and salvage his cut in post. So it's it is a, a lot, but again, it's another film about serious, uh, uh, isolated religious figure struggling with their faith. Um, and it's just, it's very, it's very sort of surreal to me that he's made, he's made two incredible films about priests, but one of them was just a prequel <laughs> to The Exorcist. I'm sorry, at a certain point, we, we are, we are going to have to cover every single Exorcist movie. I, I was, I was saying once Twin, once our Twin Peaks retrospective is done, it's, that's, Exorcist is at some point going to happen. Um... Yeah, so so it was it was, uh, yeah, it it was something that he took over in two thousand and four, two thousand and five, when the original director drops out because they were not very well. Um, it's 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 got Stellan Skarsgård in it as as playing the younger version of Ma- of Max von Sydow's character, uh, playing oh, play, playing a young Father Marin. Um, and Schrader delivers the rough cut, and uh, as one person writes about this, they <laughs> go, okay, uh, "the the the company Morgan Creek were reportedly disappointed to find that Paul Schrader had made a Paul Schrader movie." Uh, <laughs> it's it's very very strange because they eventually released Dominion um, recut by uh, Rennie Harlan, who's like a Finnish action movie director. And you so you can watch the sure. two, the two cuts, and you basically have like 
an incredibly good example of how of how directors can kind of recontextualize exactly the same material. <laughs> um but yeah, it's there's 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 a lot to it's basically a kind of like it's it's him developing the ideas of fa- around faith and religion and spirituality that find kind of like fullest expression in First Reformed. But it's it's just a fun uh, link between uh, between Taxi Driver and the Exorcist franchise. <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say like First Reformed is Taxi Driver by way of the Exorcist. Yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Someday, uh, Damie, a real rain will come. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's got like the mirror of him pouring the Pepto-Bismol into his whiskey with like Trav- <laughs> Travis Bickle's like Alka-Seltzer, that, sh- the, that famous yep. shot. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's Taxi Driver, but what if you were incredibly disillusioned with American evangelicalism? <laughs> as, as happens, yeah. So I think the last formalism point I want to talk about is IMDb again. Uh, okay. So in, in the IMDb goofs section for First Reformed, you'll find the following entry. And I quote, In the voiceover, Toller tells how he went to the church one night and, quote, fell asleep on a bench, close quote. No ordained minister would ever call a, quote, pew, a, quote, bench, and then the CinemaSense ding plays. Ding. And I think I, I want I wanted to highlight this in, in the formalism section uh, because that, that that shouldn't be in the IMDb goof section. That's that's not a goof. To- Toller is of course uh, a, a preacher man of you know he's earned his stripes. He knows what a pew is. That's not in question. The, the correct question to ask is, why is he referring to a pew, something that's not just a bench, as just a bench? Might that might that reveal something about his character? Is, is that not a scripting error? Is And is that more, I don't know, a, a man who's losing his, more than just his faith, but his, his will to go on in this world, the, the disenchantment of everything he thought he cared about. And now, and now this, what used to be the sacred site, the pew, the place where his congregation would rest. Now it's just a bench. It's just a hunk of wood. Like this, oh my God, it's so, it's like it's, the, the poison of cinema sins is, is not just located to that YouTube channel. <laughs> no, it's it, it, like this idea of like, again, you know, what, what do we want? We save what we want, genuine experience. What we really want is emotion. We want the kind of like mm. the easy coherence that, means that we don't necessarily have to think uh but it's 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 very funny it's very funny that that gets labeled a goof <laughs> and you go uh, and i don't then, know i don't know maybe people write and film and edit the film deliberately i don't know it's just a thought <laughs> and, 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 even, and even that like film like so many other artworks kind of transcends the whole idea of the goof to begin with right like because we could talk about like is anything that winds up on a, a movie a goof? Is anything even a mistake? And not in the kind of crass way of looking at mistakes like, oh, oh, the, the, the boom mic operator made a mistake and lowered the boom too far. Like, those were mistakes made by those boom mic operators or, or the filmmaker behind the camera, right, aiming a little too high and catching the boom mic. 
right? But now, like, like those have transcended mistakes. Now those are the hallmarks of a certain era of like independent proletarian cinema, of a certain style of art. Yeah. Now people drop boom mics into their shot to signify a relationship to a filmic history. It's a gag intentionally included in so many B-movies, just as a wink to the knowing audience. That And that retrospectively makes every single every option to do that in the past no longer a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right? Because like, mistakes signify something incorrect. Now it's part of a corrected history. Right? Like, like the, the fucking Kafka and his per- precursors yet again comes to haunt us. <laughs> Everything that winds up in a film is in the film, so deal with it. Yeah, like the the the, the ding. Oh, in this scene, no, 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 no. Like, forget it, forget it. Say something interesting about that shit, or, or get out of here with the little like, like because sure, con- it's fun to find continuity errors. It's fun. It's fun to be like, oh, his desk move. Like in the, in this movie, there's a scene where his desk moves. Whatever. Who cares? You know, like let's let's have some fun. Let's have more fun with that. What does it mean that his desk moved? Can we do something interesting with that discursively? Is he frantically moving his desk for some weird re- for for the kind of like, like random and untraceable, these Markovian impulses of a dying man who no longer believes in his God, who spent his life wasted. Like maybe he would frantically reposition his desk without any thought or direction because his whole life now is just these impulses. Who knows? Let's do something interesting with this information rather than like, Oh, you, but, you could, but, but than ding. Neil deGrasse Tyson's voice comes out. Um, <laughs> actually, this movie couldn't have happened because God isn't real and you can't just float in space. <laughs> Cinema sins ding. Yep. Uh, Paul Schrader debunked. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 this it's this flat ontology, right? It's this like it's this hermeneutics of like a capitalistic void. You know, like, don't actually, like, pretend to discuss the movie, but really only try and be superior to any and all piece of art. Because that's like the, it's libidinal fucking economy, right? It's simple desire, right? Like, all of this CinemaSins ding bullshit is just an attempt to, like, aggrandize the self over a piece of art. When even, 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 like, even the shittiest movies, even the worst movies, even half the stuff I watch, anything from Mill Creek Entertainment... Right. Even the most junk of junk like has within it the potential of inspiring divine awe, because here we have a human who created a piece of art like and that is closer to the divine than any like uh, ding could ever humanly possibly conceivably be. Yes. Closed. Yes. What a way to wrap up the formalism (laughs) zone. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Every I, I think I was about due for that. Every few months here, I have to I have to rant about some some factual pokery that's going on look if you would like dear listener if you would uh if you would like to help us in our continuing uh struggle against the 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 flat ontology of contemporary cinema the the neil degrasse tysonification of media criticism then uh please do consider making a donation to, along with the rest of the congregation at the <laughs> uh at the hv crypt at patreon.com slash horror vanguard horror which is where you can support the show uh you get bonus episodes you get uh early access and you get a whole bunch of other cool stuff it really does help us keep doing what we do. So if you enjoy the show, please do think about supporting. Now, where to next? <laughs> let's uh, let's let's Bob Ross this discourse. No mistakes, only happy little accidents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, should should we talk about how to uh, non-actionably blow up a pipeline? Yeah, so it's impossible to discuss this movie in 2023 without putting it in the context of Andreas Malm's like incredibly successful book, and especially because like that that this book now has a movie, which is is kind of blowing my mind. I would have never guessed that that movie would have gotten a major studio at or that book would have gotten a major studio adaptation. Uh, you know, it's just, deep, deeply surreal boom. to see Verso books in the movie business. Yes. <laughs> I, I, if you, if you would have told me that like a, a, a Verso zero repeater style book would have a, a major Hollywood studio release. Where, where's, where's my ghost, ghosts of my life movie? <laughs> where, where, come on, where, where's my slime dynamics film? Slime dynamics. Like, come like. <laughs> Let's let let let's do this. Where where where's where's Nick Estes's movie? Like, like, come on, let's go. Um, yeah. What do you what do you think of what do you think of how to blow up a pipeline? I mean, in the context of this movie, I, I think it's really there's so much. This is this part of the conversation. I think is so contextually dependent on when we're watching this movie because it's not 2017, and and now we're living in a world where like. One, environmental conversations are becoming so much more stark. And two, like, I mean, the fact that, and, and this is, the, I, I saw the, I thought the trailer, when I first saw the trailer for the movie, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, I thought it was a joke. I, I thought, I thought like some left Twitter shit poster put together a trailer out of like stock footage or with their friends just as a gag. And then no, it's like a real movie. And like the fact that that's a, a real movie speaks, I, I think like you you can do it. You could write a literally a book on the fact that they made that book into a movie. I'm still kind of flabbergasted. So by by so the rapidly changing context here. For people who've not seen First Reformed, a pretty much the 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 majority of the plot concerns uh, Ernst Toller, who comes across this member of his congregation, uh, Michael, who is. Uh, it's suffering from a kind of profound sense of a eco anxiety. Uh, Michael uh, ends up dying, and Toller has to kind of confront the fact that one of the largest donors to his church, uh, the person who basically keeps the lights on and makes sure that he has a place to live, uh, is the head of a company that is one of the uh, is a is a massive petrochemical. Uh, company, huge polluting company, mm-hmm. um, and what do you do about that? Like the question becomes: At what point is, uh, let me euphemistically say, direct action against private property not only necessary but justified? Uh, and this is where it connects to Andreas Malm's book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, um, a book which I ordered, and then a friend went, "Oh." <laughs> I see you're on a list now, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was very funny, um, in which Mal makes this kind of defense of not only the uh, the uh, just the kind of moral justification, but actually the tactical necessity for destruction of property as environmental self-defense. Um, I think there's some problems with it. I think it's far too... Oh, yeah. Uh, it's. It, I mean, it's a polemic... Um, but it makes some very trenchant criticisms of of movements like Extinction Rebellion. But it's like it doesn't take the police seriously enough as a kind of problem to be 
dealt with. Uh, and there's been some kind of interesting criticisms of the film, which I have not seen yet, so I won't kind of... Neither have I. It's not... It, but it, again, it's deeply weird to do that. And I guess, like, you know, in a way, this is this is the question of, like, horror as the ontology of capitalist modernity, right? Horror is the thing that we are all in some way living through or fa- in, in too many cases failing to live through. Um, and I guess, like, what do you think of of first reforms attempt to grapple with the question of exercising violence as a necessary tactic. Mm, well, so I think the first thing that you said is really interesting is horror is kind of this er condition of capitalism, which, uh, you know, I, I don't, I think we'll talk more about that Halloween 2024, but like, um, <laughs> um, so in the context of this movie, one thing that I think is really interesting is Toller is is struggling with like the same kind of despair, right? That that winds up claiming the life of a member of his congregation. <clears throat> and I think by the end of the movie, th- this movie decides to to take a direction, right? This movie takes a stand, right? This movie doesn't end in like a wishy washy uh, kind of. I really loved the ending of this movie. The ending of this movie isn't just like. It doesn't end with a polemic, right? The ending of this movie does not go out on like, like uh, because so so one thing that happens in the course of the movie is Toller finds out that the uh, member of his congregation that he's that he's attempting to console and work with uh, had built a suicide vest, right? That he was going to use to make some grand political statement and end his own life to 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 turn his despair into some kind of statement, and Toller decides to take take up that proverbial cross to become a martyr, to do the same thing himself. And then at the end of the movie, the, the woman that he's fallen in love with comes into the church, even though he, he, he does the like, don't go to school today, Becky thing. And when, when that happens, like, like the, the ending scene of the movie, or the ending sequences of the movie are, is, is him discarding the suicide vest, wrapping himself in, in barbed wire, this act of self-flagellation, and then embracing embracing this woman that he's he's and maybe love isn't the right term here, but they have developed this kind of like intractable bond, you know that 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 might be greater even than some kind of like heteronormative dating, um, and I think that that is is an incredibly bold way to end this movie because this movie isn't about the kind of like an individualistic polemic that grandstands on the aesthetics of violence. This this movie ends on like okay what does it take for an individual to develop what the strength necessary to bear the pain of living and still connect with someone which is infinitely harder that that is an act of of so much more spiritual martyrdom than a, a kind of like grandstanding violence aesthetic of violence you know one one thing is literally over in a flash and forgotten and the other thing like it's actually generative it's actually moving in a direction rather yeah. than kind of just like succumbing to the politics of the moment yeah the this idea of like uh it's interesting you use the word martyrdom um and it's like there are already people who have died because of a climate crisis who have not been martyred right uh the the mediterranean is full of full of uh yes. the, the bodies of people mm-hmm. who have already died and have, and this idea of like uh so there's the way that I kind of try and think through this question is 
Toller's house is basically empty. So you find out in the course yeah. of the film, he's dying of stomach cancer. He drinks way too much. Um, he comes from a military background. He was a military chaplain. He encouraged his son to join the army. Uh, six months later, his son's dead in Iraq. He has a complete breakdown. His house is, compl- is like... He, he like the, the huge amounts of this film are basically uh you getting to watch a man kind of psychologically torture himself uh as a way of like uh reckoning with his own guilt and we've said this before but guilt is this kind of like is is uh, is a horror is horror mostly because it's a debt that we owe to ourselves that mm-hmm. we can never pay back um and so there is only one book that's shown in his house, uh, and it's by Thomas Merton. Merton's a kind of interesting figure. So Merton's this American Trappist monk, uh, was enormously famous in the 20th century, huge, wrote something like 50 or 60 books, uh, was a poet, was an essayist, um, and is well known for his kind of very staunch opposition to uh, the Cold War, to nuclear war, and was a well-known pacifist. Um, so, And there's a sentence from Merton, which I really like, where he's writing about the nature of violence. And he says, Violence today is white-collar violence, the systematically organized, bureaucratic, and technological destruction of man. Um, and I'm like, this is the context in which his potential choice right at the end of the film has to be understood. Right? Because... It's this idea of like, there's a question that comes up in the course of the film a lot, uh, which is something that um, Michael asks Toller, which is, will God forgive us for what we've done? Uh, And it's something that Toller later asks his congregation, you know, will God forgive us for what we've done to the earth? Uh, And then right at the end, there is instead of an act of destruction, there's a kind of act of generation. There's something that is... Uh, opens onto the possibility of of the new. Um, And I think it's precisely because in some ways that act of destruction is a bureaucratic and technological destruction, right? It's a, it is qualitatively similar to the violence that exists as the ontology of capitalist modernity. I I think that is such, that that is such a good point, right? Like this, because I think what, what this movie grapples with that other texts I don't think quite make it too engaging with is these issues are not individualistic, they're systemic. And that's something that First Reformed is kind of textually very hooked into, right? And of course, like, this, there are no polemics in this one. Like, like at no point does Toller go like, like, hello, God, it's, it's Toller, a character in this movie. I have realized that things are systemic and not individualistic. Henceforth, I will now form a bond with someone who formerly I was alienated from. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> it's not that crass. Like this text is much more, much more clever about it. And I think like, like that is the entire end of this movie. It's like, do you, do you reinsert yourself into kind of the, the, the gears of this machinery and perpetuate to just kind of like more more violence that just churns a cycle forward eternal or do you step out and i think that's what toller is doing when he's embracing you know like the you know his his newfound friend here at the end his lover however we want to look at this like you know like they're, they they wind up being totally reconnected in a way that i think is like ah, it's just such a powerful ending yeah 
Yeah, and there's this, there's this. Uh, in a way, this is a really great film if you if you if you maybe don't spend a lot of time watching and thinking about films because it's very it. And I don't mean this in a bad way. It's very obvious about what it's about. It yeah. it tells and shows you as clearly as it possibly can. So Toll has this other line where he says, "Every act of preservation is an act of creation. Everything mm. preserved renews creation. It's how we participate in it." And it's like, in a way, that's exactly the ending, right? Um, and I think one other kind of point that I wanted to bring up is this, like, what I think is maybe one of the most horrifying bits of the entire film. It's where Michael has this, uh, him and Toller are having this argument about whether or not you should have children. Yes. Uh, and Michael has this incredible speech where he says, the bad times, they'll begin. And from that point, everything moves very quickly. You know, the social structure can't bear the stress of multiple crises, opportunistic disease, anarchy, martial law, the tipping point. And this isn't in some like distant future. You will live to see this. And it's like, this, it's, it's chilling, right? This is, this is the, this is why this film is a horror film. Uh, and it, again, contextually, this makes so much sense because watching this uh, post in twenty twenty three post COVID post COVID nineteen opportunistic disease post the the insurrectionary uh, protests and struggles of that summer of twenty twenty post you know watching so many cities not just across the United States but across the world call in the police and then the army to kind of deal with protesters. It's like. Uh, this is what I mean when I say that the kind of if if you could if you could write an ontology of the present, you're writing a horror story. So Mary, Mary is Michael's wife, and the whole the thing that gets Toller in contact with Michael and Mary is that Michael wants Mary to have an abortion. Mary is pregnant, and Michael is like, the world is just going to become a nightmare. We can't have kids. Why bring life into this world? Like that from that, Michael has already conceded. Right. Michael might wear the aesthetics of a political radical, right, of an environmental radical, but it's simply an aesthetic, right? He has conceded to despair, right? From his ontological standpoint, uh, the corporations have already won, the environment's already destroyed, the collapse has already ended, everything is, there is no hope for him, which is why he has chosen this path of aesthetically destructive violence. Right. It's it's just the culmination of this kind of suicidal ideation paired with this politically engaged despair. You know, he doesn't want things to get better. He wants things to end. And I think that's the, the, the kind of what winds up being the difference between Michael and Toller as, you know, Toller begins down the same path. But by the end of the movie, like realizes that there's something that there, he can instead of instead of succumbing to the despair, he can participate in creation. Right, because there's that question he asked, right? Like that that you brought up, like, will God forgive us for what we've done? You know, as you know, like following the Christian precepts, we are set forth as stewards of creation. And is this stewardship? Question mark. Yeah, I don't. I don't think this does not feel like stewardship. And even that, like, of course, like that has been used to justify so many colonial crimes throughout history. I don't think that's a good framework to continue from. But like even even accepting that faulty kind of problematic precept to begin with, like, what okay, what does it mean to be the steward of something that's really fucked? You know, what does it mean to inherit something that's like really screwed up and and have to deal with like, and again, like, you know, as as Toller kind of visually does, like 
quite literally becomes spiritually strong enough to lift his despair. You know, the, the barbed wire gnawing into his flesh isn't literal. He's not literally wrapped in barbed wire. He's spiritually wrapped in barbed wire. He's lost contact with his God. His family is dead or deserted. Everything is broken. He's literally dying. Like, but in the end of the movie, he becomes strong enough to carry that. And I think that that is like, like that for, you know, like we were joking at the start of this, that I thought that this movie was really upbeat, but like, that's, that this is, this is one of the most positive endings to a movie we've ever talked about by my estimation, because here is a man who has truly been stripped of everything that could have supported the weight of his life. Every single tent pole of his existence has been taken from him. And in the end of the movie, he still finds a way to, to lift that up and to, and to continue down some kind of path that like ostensibly could do political good yeah i think there's this this argument is is about hope versus despair right this idea of like mm -hmm. uh that honestly it just it just makes me think of that the the the, the kafka quote you know I, I and i think this is something that expresses something that horror is very good at articulating which is that the world is Perhaps the world is full of hope, infinitely full of hope, but just not for us. Um, you know, maybe, maybe for those of, like the, this kind of the the necessity of the dialectical relationship between uh, pessimism and optimism, I think is 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 profoundly true on a kind of very existential level. Um, because if you consider the situation rationally. You go well, yeah. You know, what can you do? But it just—it just makes me think of uh, Adorno's great quote about like everything has to be considered from the point of view of eternity, right? From the point of view that like nothing is really beyond saving. That utopia is is still something that is happening. That is an unfolding process by which uh, we are drawn into the active construction of it. Let, let, let's just briefly look at Mary really quickly because you're absolutely right. And like, you, I, John, John, as, as, as someone who's done a bit of, you know, theological study, uh, the name Mary, uh, where, where exactly does the Anglo world adopt <laughs> that honorific? <laughs> uh, I, I can't, uh, uh, I don't, mm, I'm not quite sure. Look at Mary, the mother of God, right? Yeah. Like, uh, like, Mary, a, pre a pregnant Mary. Mm, I don't know. It's not, it's not. There's, I'm not get, I'm not getting anything here. <laughs> yeah, re, re, CinemaSins ding. Uh, Mary was, <laughs> like, but so I think I think this is really discursively interesting, right? Because biblical Mary is uh, Jesus is is born of a virgin mother, right? D directly impregnated by by God, a, a fountain of the renewal of hope in this world, born of the impossible, and and this this is a retelling of that for our contemporary age. This uh, uh, today's Mary wouldn't be a virgin, impregnated by by the the boundless hope of the divine. She she would be a, a working woman down on her luck, impregnated by limitless despair. Right, like that would be, and then and then the the kind of like hope of rejuvenation born of that would still be there. Right, like like the the whole the whole ending of this movie is like. Even if you inherit nothing but total despair, you can you can still push through that. There, there's still a light at the end of that tunnel. There's still something worth fighting for, worth working towards. You don't have to succumb to the kind of like 
the 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 aesthetics and the excess and the fire of your own anguish right you can kind of like you know like through the characters in this movie through like you know weirdly quiet activities right through through having this weird meditative practice with someone close to you through journaling through hugging like kind of ascend beyond your own suffering and then like that i think like opens the door through alienation right because i think another thing this movie is just strongly a text about is a text about alienation like everybody in this movie is so alone with their suffering until the end I mean, there's the there's a there's the quote from the Principle of Hope, which I really love, which is uh, where Blog says that it is precisely the defeated man who must try the outside world again. It's like this the the, the kind of un unbearable. It's like it's like being locked. It's like willingly locking yourself in a cell, in a monastic cell, to be alone forever when there is somebody right next to you, uh, separated only by the thinnest of walls. Uh, and if you were to just push just for a moment, you know, the, that wall would kind of give way. And it's like, that's, that's it. Some people might think that that's kind of a politically sort of quietist um, or politically naive or defeatist way of kind of avoiding the hard questions. But I actually think it raises several harder questions of like the sufficiency of human collectivity, um, which which is... Uh, again, th- which again theologically is expressed in this kind of like the the uni- the specificity of love becomes universalized, right? Because because uh, you know we have the ability to love one, we have the ability to love all. I love that point. I think I think we should end with that. What, what, what do you think? Uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, just a beautiful point. Just a beautiful point to end on. Well, everyone, uh, thank you for listening to today's episode of The Power of Love, your number one podcast about love and uh, friendship, uh, power therein, <laughs> friendship and cinema. Uh, well, we look forward to joining you next week uh, when we discuss another movie where, uh, you know, coming coming together truly does inspire and lift us up through political hardship. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week. Stay spooky.